Let's come to the Lord in prayer. And now, O Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, grant that your word would dwell in us richly in all wisdom in this hour. In your name and for our sake, amen. We'll be reading from uh, the first chapters of Ezekiel. Uh, our text plot tonight is Ezekiel 1 to 3. I know this is a worship service, but uh, I think I better maybe make a word of explanation. Uh, most of you have been very kindly indifferent, which I've appreciated. Um, but uh, you notice there's a difference in the sheen, uh, uh, partly up here. And uh, that's because I had an altercation with a motel door this morning. Uh, <clears throat> so. Uh, it's one of those things, uh, you know, the card goes in and then you pull it up and the green light goes on and you push the lever and open the door. Well, last night and so on, it uh, didn't work except uh, if you hit that thing down and shove real fast, you know, you have to be really quick, then about one in five times it opened, so we got in. And we went to breakfast this morning and came back and it wouldn't work. The green light came on, but you, you hit that, that uh, lever and shove and it, it wouldn't work. Uh, this time is about like 18 times, you know. Use my wife's key, my key, to work and so on. So, um, <clears throat> of course, she wants to get help from the motel. No male self-respecting would ever do that. So... <clears throat> Keep worrying. I, I decide I'll, I'll just take that as a little bit of give, I, maybe an eighth of an inch. I pull it toward me, and, and then remembering the principles of how this, you do this uh, is, is fast and forceful. Uh, uh, I just pulled a little bit toward me, which must have been the secret. You know, I pulled the thing out, and, and boy, did I take off. I, I jammed my head into the door jam, did a somersault halfway into the room. And um, had to cut a little bit of flesh off of the head, you know, and patch it up a little bit. So that's, that's the story. I uh, just thought I'd tell you all, you don't have to ask me. We've had our group therapy, and it's over. Now, uh, we're looking at Ezekiel 1 to 3. Uh, big, big text. I uh, can't, can't do it all justice. Uh, I have that problem of choosing too big a text. But... Um, let's, read, let's read chapter 2. That will get, uh, get us in front of it, and maybe a little bit more. Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 1. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord Yahweh. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. You, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house." 
But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me. And behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me. And it had writing on the front and on the back. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I may give you, and fill your stomach with it. And I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. We'll stop our reading there, but let's think in terms of all three chapters uh, here. Now, uh, there was a time uh, uh, back in, I guess, the 1940s, there was a minor league baseball player that um, was a left-handed pitcher, and uh, he was, uh, for some reason, out in the outfield uh, fielding some grounders or fly balls or something, and he came in to charge a a ground ball, apparently, and he got his uh, hands and arms and feet all mixed up and fell, and he fell very hard. Uh, one story anyway, was on his hand. And he didn't think too much of it until later he realized that it drastically affected his pitching. So that the coaches are saying, you know, you're not going to make a big leg pitcher anymore. But I think, one of them said, I think you might make an outfielder. Uh, You're not a bad hitter. Uh, I think I'll I'll, uh, recommend that. Well, it took a while for that to get through the Cardinals organization and minor league uh, uh, paraphernalia and so on. But uh, it was a nice thing that happened because Stan Musial did have quite a a career as an all-star ball player for the St. Louis Cardinals for maybe 20 years. He got a new position. And worked out well, but it didn't work out so nicely for Ezekiel because he got a new position and he didn't care for it. Uh, Ezekiel was a priest, it says. You look at uh, the first part of chapter 1. And uh, if chapter 1, verse 1 is right, the 30th year, that's, um, uh, that's Ezekiel's own 30th year. I know it's a big debate, but but uh, many, many people think that. Uh, if so, and if it's an analogy with the Levites, then um, uh, that would have been the year when Ezekiel would have begun his priestly ministry had he been in Jerusalem where the temple was, but he wasn't because he had been carted off with the second wave of exiles to Babylon in 597 B.C. So here he is, a priest without... Uh, without ever having the privilege, now he, he, he becomes uh, one who can, uh, at this age, take up that privilege if, if he could have been in Jerusalem, but he wasn't. He was an exile, and uh, God gave him a new position, prophet. And um, God picked his moment in the 30th year, and Ezekiel does not like it. Um, God doesn't always ask our permission about our ministry. Uh, He didn't ask Ezekiel. So I want us to look at what we can call reluctant ministry. You know we could do that with different prophets, but this is Ezekiel, so we deal with him. 
reluctant ministry. I simply want to, to run through uh, Ezekiel 1 to 3 and highlight aspects of ministry where, again, I think even though we're not prophets like Ezekiel, we're not receiving the Word of God and revelation directly, etc., as he was, nevertheless, there's some spillover in the ministry that we have in our own time. So, first of all, let's notice the support of ministry, Ezekiel chapter 1, the support of ministry. And note where that vision in chapter 1 uh, brings us in chapter 1, verse 26, and above the expanse over their heads, that is, over the heads of the cherubim, uh, there was the likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was the likeness of a, of, with a human appearance. And when you get down in the last of verse 28, it says, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. When I saw it, I fell on my face. Uh, all this indirectness isn't there. <laughs> the appearance of the likeness and, and uh, so on. It reminds you of the way uh, some of your kids speak, you know, even uh, 30-some-year-olds, you know. Well, it was like I went here and like I... Well, that's the way Ezekiel kind of talks. It's as if the, the revelation is very indirect, and, he, and, and it's the likeness of the appearance of. But you, you get the point. Now, um, what you have in, in verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 4 to 28, you know, is that, that uh, a strange uh, vision. And, and if you want to do a little text criticism, get your Hebrew Bible out, and you'll have plenty of problems in Ezekiel 1 uh, to work with. But, but you can follow it basically in verses, in verses uh, 5 to 14, you have those strange creatures. We're really cherubim and so on. They have different faces and all of that sort of thing. So they're the creatures. And then in verses 15 to 21, you have the wheels that are sort of kind of, I don't know, universal casters of some sort. That, uh, I, but you, you, you have those. And then uh, in verses 22 to 25, you have an expanse, apparently a stretched out place. Uh, uh, and and the, these cherubim creatures and the wheels are underneath and they have a stretched out place and then on top of that, verses 26 to 28, you have the, the, the likeness of the throne. But the throne is the climactic point of the vision, verse 26. Above their heads, over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne and appearance like sapphire and so on. That's the climax of the vision. That's, I think, the support of ministry. What was the import of this vision? Uh, you can... You can get a lot of it. We, we, we can't deal with all of it tonight. But, but uh, one thing I think it is saying, that, that Yahweh is the present God, obviously. Uh, 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 someone who's a Brit would might call it, a, uh, it, it speaks of the mobile majesty. Uh, this, this, uh, the, the wheels and so on of this chariot uh, uh, concoction and so on. It, it, God's... God, God's Mobile, he's mobile, uh, and and his presence is not just in Israel or in Jerusalem, but he uh, is is there coming out of the north in this vision, and he's there in Babylonia as well. He's the present God. Um, It it reminds me of the uh, slogan uh, on the uh, buses, mass transit buses in Louisville, Kentucky. 
uh, a few years ago, several decades ago, it, they had this thing on the side of the buses, we are ubiquitous. Now, that would have puzzled some Louisville citizens, I'm sure, uh, but, but it, it, had, it was laid out like in the dictionary, you know. It was cut up into syllables, and, and the, the uh, accent marks and the grammatical marks were on it, like in the dictionary, ubiquitous, and uh, you get the idea. They're everywhere. Uh, the mass transit system was everywhere. Well, well, Yahweh's ubiquitous, and he's the present God, and he's not just there. In Jerusalem, in fact, he would show that he was leaving there in the book, uh, but he's here uh, by the Kabar Canal. Uh, I, it depends how you pronounce that. Uh, Kabar would be more like the Hebrew. Uh, it's usually anglicized as uh, Kibar. Uh, doesn't matter with those pronunciations. Just pronounce it authoritatively. No one will question you. Now... Um, so he's the present God. And then he, he is also the reigning God, isn't he? That's the whole point of the, the vision of the throne. He's the reigning God. Uh, and then uh, he's the speaking God. You notice uh, verse 25 talks about the voice. And then at the last of verse 28, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. All of chapter 1 is taken up just to introduce the speaker. And it's saying, Yahweh is the speaking God. Uh, so that's, those are just three aspects. But you see, it, it, when he's the speaking God, it, the, this vision is not just to create numinous awe or scare the daylights out of Ezekiel, but this God speaks clear words. Is it majestic? Is it impressive? Yes, it is. But he speaks clear words. He's not just a God you can feel, but a God you can hear. Now, you see that. The thing I want you to see here, though, is this whole matter of the throne, the encouraging and heartening power of the throne. I don't know that Ezekiel would have thought of it that way at this point. If you remember another time in Revelation chapter 4, verse 2, you have John told to come up. Uh, to, to, to heaven, a door was open in heaven, and he said, I came to be in the Spirit, uh, and uh, a throne was set in heaven, and one was sitting on it. That's important. One thing to have a throne, but you want someone sitting on it. That anchors one's whole ministry. As I say, I don't know. I don't know that Ezekiel would have put this together maybe right away. But it's not only in Babylon that you need to remember this. You need to remember this in your own situation. You may be as discouraged as Ezekiel may have been. I thought it was interesting reading uh, Eugene Peterson's uh, uh, under, the unpre- under, under the unpredictable plant. And, and uh, he talks there about a uh, situation different than Babylon and so on, but he talks about the, the, um, uh, the grand theology we have and so on and the high expectations that we sometimes have and then where we sometimes end up. 
And, and he put it this way. I'll just, I'll just quote him. He said, we work under the large rubrics of heaven and hell, and now we find ourselves in a town of 3,000 people on the far edge of Kansas. I don't know why they always pick on Kansas. That really bugs my wife because that's her home state, but that's what he said. Uh, a town of 3,000 people on the far edge of Kansas in which the library is under-budgeted, the radio station plays only country music, the high school football team provides all the celebrities the town can manage, and a covered dish supper is the high point in congregational life. It's hard for a person, he says, who has been schooled in the urgencies of apocalyptic and with an imagination furnished with saints and angels to live in this town very long and put up, take part in its conversations without getting a little impatient, growing pretty bored and wondering if it wasn't an impulsive mistake to abandon that ship going to Tarshish. Indeed. Uh, No, it doesn't just have to be Babylon, but sometimes you have to be told that Yahweh's throne is where you are ministering as well, and there is a throne, and one sitting upon it, and Jesus reigns wherever you are ministering, and that ultimately is what keeps you halfway sane. In the process of ministry, that's the most practical matter to get this into your thinking theology. That's important. That God reigns here in Babylon and in Remotesville, where you may be. And what holds you up in that is the vision of a throne. Uh, it's the sort of thing that uh, G.K. Chesterton was once asked that question, you know, what book would you want if you were abandoned on a desert island? And he replied, Thomas, practical guide to shipbuilding. (laughs) Well, that's it. And what do you need to keep in front of you at all costs in your ministry, no matter how deserted and abandoned it may seem to be. Well, no ministry is hopeless as long as there is a throne and one who is sitting on it. That is the support of ministry. Now, secondly, notice that you have here the status of ministry in chapter 2, verse 1. Notice that uh, he said to me, son of man, stand on your feet. That's the way uh, Yahweh addresses Ezekiel, son of man. Now, it doesn't exactly turn me on when I get into the New Revised Standard Version, which in a lot of ways isn't a bad translation. But, but you know, it says, instead of son of man, it says, oh, mortal. And I know what they're trying to convey and so on, but that, it doesn't quite grab you the way son of man does. Now, the reason they do that, I think, is because any time you have something that looks like it's tinged with a little male or gender sort of uh, uh, suggestion, they break out in hives, and you have to neuter that. And so you have, oh, mortal. Ah. No, just son of man. It. Ben Adam, it occurs 93 times in Ezekiel. What's wrong with son of man? You don't have to be, uh, you know, 
uh, a, a, a male chauvinist or anything, but, but son of man. It's son of man. It means, yes, you're mortal. It means you're human. That's not a disparaging term. That's not son of man in that sense. It's just an accurate term. Son of man. That's what you are. That's the status of your ministry. Now, that's not the same son of man as is used in Daniel 7.13, but this is Ben-Adam, son of man, you're son of Adam, uh, and you need to remember who you are. That's the status of, of ministry. And especially you need to remember who you are as a mere son of man if you have a fawning people. Uh, that, that tend to stroke you a lot. Um, nothing particularly wrong with that. Um, there, in fact, it's, it can be a positive thing. You know, there, 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 are some, there are some congregations in which there's a tradition that has been established in the congregation over the years, and they have had a high view of the ministerial office or of the office of the teaching elder. And they hold because... Not, it might not be because you're such a hot shot, you know, but it's just they, they, they hold your, you in, in that office in high esteem, and that's nice. Uh, I've had one or two congregations where that tradition has been in place. That's, I think that's entirely proper, but you have to watch it sometimes. Sometimes when your people may be a little bit fawning and so on, you can forget who you are. And Yahweh calls you son of man. Don't, don't forget that. Um, Luther, um, I don't know if you have to go as far as Luther went. Uh, Nick Needham says in his church history that, that uh, those who embraced Luther's teaching uh, called themselves evangelicals, though their enemies called them Lutherans. And that was a term that the evangelicals later adopted for themselves, Lutherans, over Luther's protest. So what did Luther say? He said, who is this Luther? My teaching is not my own, and I have not been crucified for anyone. Why should it happen to me, miserable, stinking bag of maggots that I am, that the children of Christ should be called at by my insignificant name? I don't know if you want to go to that length and call yourself a miserable, stinking bag of maggots. It would be true. It would be true for me. I don't know if we have to go quite that far, maybe. Uh, Just keep it in mind. But we must always remember, you must always remember who you are. The status of ministry. Don't strut. You're just... Son of Man. In uh, James McPherson's uh, book on the war between the states called Battle Cry of Freedom, I think it is, uh, he tells about uh, Salmon Chase, you know, who was uh, Secretary of the Treasury under Lincoln's administration. Uh, and um, he was a talented fellow and apparently well qualified. Uh, he, he was a governor, he was a senator. Uh, he would become a chief justice of the Supreme Court. He was secretary of the treasury there. He really wanted the top job. And, um, and, and uh, he probably had the qualifications for it. One of his friends, though, Ben Wade, uh, said of Chase, Chase is a good man, 
but his theology is unsound. He thinks there's a fourth person in the Trinity. Now, I don't think we ever think that, but sometimes you can be tempted to edge that way. Just remember who you are, son of man. Okay, and then thirdly, notice the simplicity of ministry. Chapter 2, verse 3 through chapter 3, verse 11, the simplicity of ministry. And let's just pick up several texts here. Uh, Look at chapter 2, the last of verse 4, where Yahweh says, I send you to them, and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord Yahweh. Look at chapter 2, verse 7, and you shall speak my words to them. Chapter 3, verse 1, son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. 3, 4. Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. And the same sort of thing in verse 11, 311. Go to the exiles to your people and speak to them and say to them, thus says the Lord Yahweh. We can just focus on 2.7. I just wanted you to see that this runs through the whole passage, this simplicity of ministry. What do I mean by that? That's pretty simple. Chapter 2, verse 7. You shall speak my words to them. That's the essence of your ministry. Sometimes we can make things pretty complex. Things can get pretty complicated. And sometimes we need to hack things off and get back to, to doing our main stuff. Well, there it is. That's the simplicity of ministry. How do you do that? Well, uh, chapter 2, verse 10, and... Um, or 2.9, really, through chapter 3, verse 1. You eat the scroll. There was a scroll, he said. And what was he do to that? Do with that? Well, you know the, the idea. The eating of the scroll is the assimilation of the word. And this scroll was written uh, on both sides with words of lamentation, warning, and woe, or mourning and woe. Uh, so it was filled with judgment, and that was to be Ezekiel's primary message. He was to eat it. He was to assimilate it. He was to make it a part of himself. And it seems to me that's what's being done here with the simplicity of ministry. The, the basic aspect of my ministry is to speak Yahweh's words to his people. Chapter 2, verse 7. There's the heart of it. In order to do that, I need to eat the scroll. I need to spend time with the scroll. I need to be doing exegesis and beating my head against the text and uh, beseeching heaven's gates for light on it in order, in order to speak that word. Now, um, that's what he was to do. Um, Eugene Peterson in a his uh, book called Eat This Book. I'm not a Peterson junkie or, or anything like that or groupie, but, but sometimes he puts things in a, in a little bit different way. That's, that's very helpful. Uh, here's what he um, said about the whole matter of exegesis and the study of the scroll. He says, exegesis is an act of love. It loves the one who speaks the words enough to want to get the words right. 
It respects the words enough to use every means we have to get the words right. Exegesis is loving God enough to stop and listen carefully to what he says. It follows that we bring the leisure and attentiveness of lovers to this text, cherishing every comma and semicolon, relishing the oddness of this preposition, delighting in the surprising placement of this noun. Lovers don't take a quick look, get a message or a meaning, and then run off and talk endlessly with their friends about how they feel. In other words, what we maybe think is hard, sweaty, dogged work, and it is, studying the scriptures, exegesis, is an expression of our love for the one who is speaking in the scripture. That puts a different spin on it. It makes you think a little bit more about how much you need to be eating this scroll in your ministry. Somehow, if we're not eating the scroll a good bit of the time, our ministry is out of balance. And this can be a special problem, I think, if you're a man who is on a staff in a, maybe a medium size or a large church. This is just my own heresy. You don't have to believe this. Uh, but um, sometimes I think when we get in a staff position as an assistant or something like that, sometimes you may run into the situation where you're not only not preaching or teaching regularly, uh, now, I don't mean that you need to, that, that the, the uh, minister or something needs to have you preaching uh, two Sunday nights a month or something. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that you ought to be, have something plugged in where if you're a minister of the Word, you're ministering the Word. If it's an adult Sunday school class or a youth Sunday school, but something that puts you through the discipline of exegeting the text to apply it to the Lord's people that keeps you in the Word because that's what you are. You're a minister of the Word. But I remember Alan Curry at RTS when he was academic dean. I thought, Alan, why do you go out practically every week on supply preaching or go do these interim stints? Why do you put yourself at the cob of work on top of what you already do? Why do you do... It forces me to deal with texts. Yeah. No, that's the simplicity of ministry. It's really quite simple. You shall speak my words to them. Sometimes it takes a little sweat. Now then, let's look fourthly at the candor of ministry. The candor of ministry. And here again, let me uh, focus your attention on several texts. As you know, as you read through these things, uh, Ezekiel or Yahweh repeats uh, certain matters. Look uh, at chapter 2, verse 3, and the first part of 4. He said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. All right, then look at chapter 2, verses 5 to 7. 
Whether they hear or refuse to hear for their rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns are with you and you sit on scorpions. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house, and you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. And notice chapter 3, verse 7. But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they will not, they are not willing to listen to me, because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. They won't be willing to listen to you. That's the candor of ministry. The honesty of God is a huge advantage in ministry. I don't know as we always look at it this way, but you can see this in, in Jeremiah, you can see it in Isaiah, you certainly see it in Ezekiel. This is not stuff we prefer to hear, but looked at another way. There's a certain kindness of God here that he's straightforward about what the call will involve. You can trust a God like that that tells you the straight dope on what your calling's going to involve. That's a good God. You need to see that. It's the candor of ministry. I sometimes uh, tell uh, people it's it's sort of like if... um, One of you fellows, for instance, wanted to buy my 1997 red Ford Ranger pickup without an extended cab. Um, If not, not that you will, but I, um, if you did, uh, I would I would feel bound to tell you certain things, and I would say, now you need to know, uh, the gas gauge doesn't work. Now you can get that fixed if you want for 450 bucks, but you. You might just want to use that to buy books, so, but I want you to know about that. Um, and then uh, also, uh, you, you see, you just punch the tripometer back to zero every time you fill it up. So you kind of know how much gas you have left. Now, other thing, the radio doesn't shut off. Um, you're supposed to be able to punch this button and it stays in and that kicks the radio off, but that doesn't work anymore. It just keeps popping out. So you just have to turn it down if you don't want it on. I just want you to know that. Another thing, you know the gear shift there, uh, the, the part at the top where it tells you what gears you're in first, the second, and so on. Well, that's a little plastic thing in it. It's kind of loose. It just rotates around, sort of. When the when the the when you're running down, you know, on the street or the highway, and and it's okay unless you listen to it and then you hear it rattling. So you might have to hold your hand on that. You need to know about that. Um, and uh, the check engine lights on all the time. Uh, don't don't worry about it. Uh, you can have it fixed uh, for about a day and a half for $127. And uh, then it comes back on again. You take it back in and you can spend $80 and it'll last another day and it'll come on again. So just don't pay attention. It's just emissions stuff. It's not hurting anybody really. Um, but, but there it is. Um, and, then, and then I want you to know that, well, it was wrecked. Uh, it's about been about 15, 14 years ago or so. I was at RTS Jackson, and I, I uh, was distracted, and I ran into uh, a nursery truck that had a very strong bed on the back 
and I crunched it up a little bit, but I got it repaired. It hadn't been any problem. Just want you to know about it, though. It was wrecked once. And then, uh, well, the driver's side seat, uh, you know how there's some foam in that well. It's kind of a rip in it, and some of the foam started coming out. So I have this very nice-looking, glossy uh, black duct tape that's, that's patched that over, uh, obviously, you would see that. But I would go through, I, I need to go through those things. Of course, your wife would say, what on earth do you want to buy an old pickup truck for like that? That doesn't look too bad. But um, you would say, you know, I think I can trust that Davis guy. He's told me everything that's wrong with that thing. Well, that's the way, that's the kindness of God. He tells us the kind of stuff we're going to meet. He never deceives us. He's always up front. And I think we need this sort of realism because of our current, can we call it, ministry culture, which can sometimes give us a very different impression of things because sometimes our ministry culture can seem to say to us that if we give ourselves to prayer, And if we formulate a ministry strategy and devise a workable vision statement and attend the latest how-to conferences and use the word missional a lot and read blogs of favorite evangelical gurus and faithfully follow certain reformed websites and meet in a weekly accountability group, then... No... Sometimes we need a good shot of candor about things. Sort of like Pee Wee Reese with Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson was upset because he was getting so many brushback pitches. Then he thought it was just because he was on the broke the color barrier and people were angry at him because he was black and so on. And Pee Wee Reese one day set Jackie down and he said, Jack, look, some of the guys are throwing at you because you're black. And that's terrible. But Jack, Some of them are thrown at you because they don't like you. That came as a revelation to Robinson. Someone wouldn't like me. Sometimes the candor is needed. And this is what the Lord is sure to give us. And you need to know it. Not because you'll face necessarily the same kind of recalcitrant congregation that Ezekiel had to face. But you need to know it. There are folks who don't care about your preaching. They don't care that it took you 18 hours to prepare that 25-minute sermon. It doesn't matter to them. It doesn't matter to them that it may have taken you five to six hours in an afternoon to plan Sunday morning worship and Sunday evening worship. No skin off their nose. And they don't really care if you pray. If you want to, it's fine. They've no objection, but they don't really give a rip. There are folks like that. You as well know it. But God is good. He tells you that sort of stuff. We're not deceived. It's the candor of ministry. Now then, fifthly, let's notice the pain of ministry. Chapter 3, verses 12 uh, to 15. Uh, The pain of ministry. The Spirit lifted me up, 312. 
and I heard behind me the voice of a great earthquake, and so on. Now look down at verses, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. The Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness, in the heat of my spirit, the hand of Yahweh being strong upon me. And I came to the exiles at Tel Aviv, who were dwelling by the Kabar Canal. And I sat where they were dwelling. And I sat there overwhelmed among them seven days. Several things we need to notice there in verses 14 and 15. Uh, As Dan Block says, Ezekiel is infuriated by the divine imposition on his life. Notice, I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit. And then you notice in verse 15... It says at the last, the ESV says, I sat there overwhelmed among them seven days. That word overwhelmed means uh, uh, horror-stricken or devastated, Uh, a little stronger than overwhelmed. What What do you make of this? Let me quote what Chris Wright said in his exposition of Ezekiel. I think he kind of sums up what's going on here. Chris Wright writes, Ezekiel would have known the fate of a prophet from the experiences of his slightly older contemporary Jeremiah. Why had Yahweh picked on him? Was it not enough to have lost his career and his future? Was it not enough to have been wrenched away from the temple of his dearest dreams? Was it not enough to be suffering the appalling living death in exile along with all the other exiles? Must he now also endure the lonely unpopularity and social exclusion that would inevitably be his lot as the prophet of yet more doom to come? We need to remember, Wright goes on, as we read on through the terrible words that will come from the mouth of this prophet, that he speaks as one reluctant to be speaking at all, as one whose reaction to his prophetic calling was not just inadequacy or guilt, but bitterness and raging anger. I went in the bitterness of my spirit. Bitterness in the heat of my spirit. I sat there desolated. For seven days. That's really the pain of ministry that Ezekiel faced. Now, you might say, well, I haven't faced that. Good. Um, But this is a sort of thing that you can feel. You can have, as you look at whatever your ministry involves and the situation you're in, it can be painful. It may not You may not react as extremely as Ezekiel, but it can be still fairly devastating. Uh, Like Calvin. Uh, You remember Calvin was uh, booted out of Geneva about 1538, as I recall. Uh, He and Farrell were uh, shown the road and the highway, and Calvin went to Basel and was probably, uh, I think Dr. Payne talked about Knox's most enjoyable time of his life, but Basel was probably the most enjoyable time of Calvin's life. He was there uh, three years uh, plus, perhaps. Uh, And uh, then um, 
he got a call uh, to come back to Geneva. Now, I don't know if it was in the meantime, but it, at some point there, uh, Calvin was writing to his friend Farrell, and he said, there is no place, he's talking about Geneva, uh, there is no place under heaven I am more afraid of. I would rather submit to a hundred other deaths than to that cross on which I would have to perish a thousand times every day. And you love Calvin. He just throws these numerals around a hundred times, a thousand times every day. Uh, it's called hyperbole, but you get the point. Uh, that was his attitude. And then he said to his friend Varey, it would have been far preferable to perish once for all than to be tormented again in that place of torture. That's Geneva. And now, while he's in Basel, they send to him asking Calvin to come back to Geneva because things have fallen apart and the whole place is in chaos and they want Calvin to come back. So, he does... Uh, and after he's back in his second tenure, he was threatened. It took a while, some time, before things kind of leveled off. He was threatened with eviction at times again during his, his second term at Geneva. And uh, he was threatened once by, now I may butcher the name, Amy Perrin, or Ami Perrin, but P-E-R-R-I-N. Uh, he uh, threatened Calvin with eviction. And uh, Calvin wrote Perrin, and he said, Such threats make no impression upon me. I did not return to Geneva to obtain leisure and profit, nor will it be to my sorrow if I should have to leave it again. Do you think I'm here because I want to be? That can be the case. I can be a case with some of you. You can be in a ministry that God seems to have led you to, and you don't want to be in it, whether it's circumstances or whatever. There's the pain of ministry, and you'd rather not be there. And yet, sometimes there's a compulsion of the hand of Yahweh that has placed you and keeps you at that point. Sometimes ministry can be a pain. Now, I don't have a glitzy anecdote to end on a happy note. Uh, you just sit there at the Kabar Canal, or you can't always be in a jovial, bouncy, positive, optimistic, excited frame of mind, but what matters is not whether you think your ministry is wonderful, but whether even when you are appalled, you still get up from the kabar and go speak Yahweh's word to the house of Israel. Let us pray. Our God, we give you thanks that you are kind to your servants. You are so considerate to let us know exactly the kinds of things we may face. And as we think of that, we give thanks for additional kindness from you 
because in many cases, in many of our cases, we have not had to face all of that. At the same time, our God, we pray that you would give to us a proper vision, not a vision statement or even necessarily a vision for our ministry, but give us a glimpse of that same vision Ezekiel had, that in every kind of ministry there is nevertheless a throne, and there is one sitting upon it. We give you thanks, Lord Jesus, for your empty cross and for your empty tomb and for your occupied throne. Amen.